Hello, you're listening to Wait, How Do You Spell That? A Rare Disease Podcast. My name is Colby, and I'm the editor here at Patientworthy. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. And today, I'm happy to welcome a very special guest to our show. Tony Laudadio is an oncology patient advocate who was diagnosed with renal cell carcinoma and oligodendroglioma, a type of rare brain cancer, while in his 20s. In the years following his remission, Tony has also started the Tony Foundation, a nonprofit that helps to support families impacted by all types of cancer with crucial financial aid. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Colby. Happy to be here. Of course. Thank you for taking the time. And to start off with today, both cancers you were diagnosed with are are relatively rare, renal cell carcinoma being a cancer of the kidneys and oligodendroglioma being a type of tumor that starts in certain neural cells. Would you mind telling us a bit more about those cancers for listeners who may not be familiar? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, both cancers were obviously a big shock for me. Uh, The first one, when I was 29, the uh, renal cell carcinoma, it's a form of tumor that is located on the kidneys. And so I ended up having a very large tumor the size of a butternut squash on my right kidney. And so I, little did I know at 29 how dangerous that really was. But I went through the process and quickly found out that I would have to you know, have a very long recovery. That cancer is very invasive. It's in your abdomen. When it gets on the kidney, 99% of the time, they just remove the kidney and the tumor. Most of the times, though, that tumor is relatively small. In my case, it was huge. So instead of going in laparoscopically, which is typical with renal cell cancer, they had to go in and actually fillet me wide open in my stomach. And so it created a lot longer recovery than for most, where they might be in an outpatient for a few days. I was in the hospital for weeks and then, you know, recovery and physical therapy for for months. So quite the journey to say the least. And then Colby, I got, you know, oligo brain cancer two years later, oligodendroglioma is the type of brain cancer that I got. It's a very rare form. In fact, really going back to the kidney cancer, the form of kidney cancer that I got was called chromophobe renal cell. And chromophobe is like three or 4% of all kidney cancer cases that are diagnosed. So very rare. And then oligo for the brain cancer is also the rarest form of brain cancer. So I got both really rare cancers that I was diagnosed with. And it was definitely a struggle, but came out on the other side. And I know what it's like to go through the process of both. And of course, the I think we're going to get to it. But the the brain cancer surgery with with oligo is quite amazing, I think, to a lot of people I've told. That's something that we tend to hear when we speak to cancer patients is just how unique their experience is, right? You, I think there's this kind of cultural idea of what cancer is, right? Oh, it's a tumor somewhere in your body. Everybody knows somebody who's had cancer at some point. But when you get down to which genetic variant you have, even within very common cancers, what that experience is like what kind of factors go into treatment, how those treatments interact with each other and with your lifestyle and other factors in it. It's really every cancer is kind of a rare cancer in that regard. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. And so you were diagnosed, like you said, with these two types of cancer, different body systems within a relatively short amount of time. Your first diagnosis in 2013, your second, just two years later 
in 2015. Yeah, I'd like to focus for a minute, like you said, on your brain cancer and what you went through to treat that. They performed a procedure called an awake craniotomy, which is very specialized. It occurs when someone is conscious rather than being put completely under. And I know that in your, for your experience, that was followed up by like a rather intensive 18 months of radiation, chemotherapy, physical therapy, and other types of treatment. Can you talk about your experiences during this point in your life? Yes. 2015, of course, I had cancer in 2013 with the renal cell, but I don't think it really ever hit me like it did in 2015. And of course, you know, I got a second cancer and that's a big deal in itself. It was a second primary cancer, meaning, you know, it did not metastasize from my kidney cancer. This was a completely new diagnosis, which all of my doctors and surgeons were all baffled because at 31 to have a second primary cancer is extremely rare, let alone a a rare form of brain cancer. And so when they told me post-diagnosis that, hey, you're going to be having a surgery on the brain, well, that's already going to be a little bit alarming, right? But what really got me was when they said, you're going to be awake for this surgery. And it typically is about a 10 hour operation. Oh my gosh. So Yeah, the first thing that goes through my head is, how can I be awake? Will I feel, am I going to be doing some kind of activities? And, you know, turns out a a lot of people know about this process. Maybe it's become, you know, as we get older, we know people that have been through it, or we've seen, they've even done documentaries about it on TV that I've come across. It's always a little surreal for me being somebody who's actually gone through the surgery, which you're right, is very rare. Not a lot of people have are ever going to be able to live to say that they've done that. And it's a surreal process, Colby, because you wake up the morning of the operation. And I was told the night before by an anesthesiologist, if I could meditate, I actually said, yeah, my mom was a psychotherapist. She taught me how to meditate at a young age in order to sleep better. And so I did get into a really calm state the night before. I woke up the next morning at 5 a.m. at MD Anderson in Houston, ready for this awake craniotomy. And they wheeled me in. They knock you out early in the surgery, and then you come to, and then they eventually knock you back out at the end of the surgery. But in between, there's about eight hours where you're awake, and they want your feedback. And so the one unique thing about the brain is that the skull cap, which they cut into, is very thin. So you would think like, man, this is a really, really invasive process. But actually, because of how how thin that skull cap is, they kind of pull back the flaps, if you will. There's not as much nerve endings in the brain either. So it's kind of like when you get Novocaine at a dentist, you can feel the pressure, but it's not painful. And so I went through that surgery and I don't ever actually remember being in pain But it was amazing. It was an amazing experience because I was sitting there in a very awkward position. Maybe the most painful part of it was how I had to lay based on where the tumor was in my brain. And so I was laying on my right shoulder for this entire day. And I was looking out one eye because the other half of my head was covered with a drape for the operating room and all the surgeons and assistants in that room. And so it was just a lengthy process. I was doing a lot of math. I'm a mathematician's son. And so I was doing a lot of math in there. They had me trying to do things because they wanted to keep my brain active. They wanted to keep me thinking and they wanted me to be as sharp as possible because when they're digging out that tumor in my brain, 
they need to know if I'm feeling something weird or mm-hmm. feeling something that I shouldn't. And ironically enough, about six hours into the surgery, as I was performing some various tasks that they wanted me to do, counting backwards by sevens, you know, which I did for what seemed like hours. Nearing the end of the surgery, I told my brain surgeon, Dr. Prabhu in Houston, who's world-renowned, guy's a genius, really fun guy too. I said, hey, Dr. Prabhu, my whole right side is vibrating. Is that normal? And you could absolutely, Colby, hear a pin drop in that operating room. It was like, I said something that really made everybody look at each other is how I remember that moment feeling. Mm-hmm. And so come to find out, I started fading off at that point. I could feel that vibration. It wasn't going away. And so the next thing I remember is waking up. They're doing an MRI of me post-surgery. Turns out they had gone ahead and they said, hey, we can't go any further digging out this tumor because we could actually, which this is the craziest part of the whole story probably, is if we went any further, Tony, he told me days later, you probably would have been fully paralyzed. Mm. So they obviously got to a point, you know, they're kind of chiseling this tumor out from above based on where it was located. And so they got to a point where they touched a nerve, which we have billions of cells and nerves in our brain. And that's why the brain is so complicated and so hard to study. It's very rare, actually, that you'll meet a neuro-oncologist or a neurosurgeon that focuses on cancer tumors because there's just not as much research on it. So when I ended up getting out of the surgery, I asked him about the vibrations and he said it was just, it's nerve damage. And a lot of it went away over time. But to this day, I still have some nerve damage in my Mm -hmm. right side. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it was so important. They'd be able to get feedback from you. If you were completely under, they wouldn't have been able to even tell that something was going wrong at that point. Yeah. And I think that's why they emphasized that part about being awake so much with me in the days leading up to the surgery, because (laughs) if I hadn't been, you're right, I, I probably either they wouldn't have wanted to perform that surgery. They would have, you know, probably sought out alternative treatment, which in my case, the tumor was big enough that they needed to get it out of there. They were very adamant about that. I'll never forget that part. But you're right. It was something that that had to happen in order for me to survive. And getting that feedback, having me awake, I remember the anesthesiologist, she was great. She was from Romania. I talked to her a lot. And I asked her, I was like, hey, can I go to sleep now? This was before Mm -hmm. the vibrating sensation, because as you're laying there for a long time and you're sedated, one of the things you really want to do is sleep. So Mm -hmm. they keep you active, not only for your feedback, but they also want to make sure that, you know, you don't pass out on them, which can happen. Right. And so there was a lot of follow-up treatment, as he said, with treating this particular cancer. So the chemotherapy and radiation and physical therapy that you went through, tell us about what the recovery period was like. Yeah, recovery was pretty insane. You know, the first cancer with the kidney cancer, recovery was brutal. There was a lot of pain, probably a quarter of the pain that I got through the brain cancer, though, because because of the brain is so complex and it controls everything we do. You know, us talking right now on this call, us looking at each other on the video part that nobody else will see. But (laughs) all these things that we do with our bodies, our exercise and our nonverbals, it controls everything. And so for the longest time, my brain was had gone through so much trauma from this surgery, I had massive migraines. Uh, I still cringe sometimes when I hear people talking about how 
oh yeah, I had this horrible migraine yesterday, but I'm still driving around, blah, blah, blah. I'm thinking, no, when you have this intense migraine, you can't see color. It feels like you're spinning in a dark room and it's the worst feeling. Had a lot of those, had a lot of rough days through treatment. You know, of course, when they diagnose you with brain cancer, they do that surgery and they give you your treatment plan. Yeah, it involves a lot of headaches and a lot of nerve pain, but ultimately losing so much of the feeling in my right side of my body was probably the most difficult thing for me because it took away my ability to, first of all, just to walk normally. Mm -hmm. So for a couple of years, I had a pretty severe limp. Just putting weight on my right side was difficult for quite some time. Gripping things. I had to do a lot of occupational therapy just to get to where I could write properly with my right hand. The brain is so crazy. I would actually start trying to write and my brain was moving faster or in some cases slower than my penmanship. Hmm. So I would end up misspelling words or not being able to place what words should go after the next mm-hmm. is frustrating. Uh, I think mentally, physically, you know, test you in so many different ways, but I did all the chemotherapy, which ended up, you know, the radiation made you fall asleep in front of people, you know, in, in the middle of a conversation, you and I would be talking and I would just pass out on the couch right in front of you. And you'd be like, ah, I guess we're not, <laughs> I guess we can't hang out much longer. That's done. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Friends of mine would tell me that. And then, chemotherapy was very different. Every one of the cancer fighters that I talked to has different stories about chemo and radiation, which oftentimes are mentioned together because a lot of times their treatment plan includes both. And so for me, the radiation wasn't too bad, but the chemotherapy was brutal. And they give you a side effect book from your oncology center, typically that shows you everything that you could feel or you could get during chemo. And I got every single thing in the book. And so the pain that came from that was a lot of it I've sort of suppressed from my head. And I think I've done a really good job in a lot of ways moving on with my cancer because I am able to compartmentalize and not focus on so much of the negative that I went through during that time. But I do remember, you know, waking up a lot on the bathroom floor and Mm -hmm. obviously a lot of there's a lot of sickness. And one thing that a lot of people don't realize about the chemotherapy is you're basically just injecting poison into your body, whether it's orally or through IV, you're being poisoned. You're not the same person you are without that poison. Therefore, frustration, stress, annoyance, physical things happen to your inability to eat or smells really bother you. I think that's some of the worst pain is when you can't eat or when you can't hold down anything that you did try to eat. That's other things accompany that too, whether it's stomach pains and back pains. And I mean, a lot of things that, like I said, you go through the whole book of side effects and you name it, I got it. And I'd I'd say I'd finish it by saying the one worst thing that I went through that was the most painful was not somebody hitting me or something extremely painful from the exterior. I got this incredible rash reaction to one of my chemo weeks that I had. And I had a breakout over every inch of my body. And it was excruciating. I compare it to having, I had poison ivy once or twice as a kid. I equate it to that, but like a hundred times worse and everywhere, not just isolated in a certain area. Mm -hmm. So I would do these baking soda bathtubs, you know, 10, 15 times a day. I mean, it was outrageous how difficult that was. So 
you name it, I had it, man. And I'm just glad that I've been off of treatment for as long as I have. I've heard it referred to as a as a type of trauma. You know, it's absolutely something that's being done to save your life. That's the intent of it. But the side effects, like you said, you had every one of them and all the ways that you don't know physically and mentally how something like this is going to affect you. It's traumatic. It's traumatic for the body and the mind. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it really is. And it affects the ones around you. And, you know, I had young mm-hmm. kids and I was not the friendliest person to be around. I think I'm a great dad and I love having my kids. I have three little girls and only one of them was around for my kidney cancer. Then two of them were around for my brain cancer, but the aftermath of my brain cancer, I had a newborn. And so I had these three young kids and I couldn't spend quality time with them because I was hurting so bad and I wanted to. And, you know, it kind of makes me emotional just thinking back to those times, how difficult it was to have these three beautiful little girls, but not really being able to enjoy my time with them as they were growing up in the early stages of their life. And I think you're right. You nailed it. Like mentally and emotionally, there was a lot of pain there for sure. And it took me, took me some time to get over that. And, and some days I still have to process kind of what I go through and what I still have to deal with for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that struck me while reading about your story is just how big of a role your family played in helping to support you during this journey. For instance, your grandfather also had multiple cancers and other health issues. And you've said you feel like his experiences and guidance really helped you in your own experiences. Can you talk about the ways in which your family helped you and why it's so important to have a support system during cancer treatment? Man, I was laying in the hospital in 2015, Colby, right after that brain surgery. And I had two really unique episodes that I'll always remember. One was this calling to do something really special once I got healthy again, which we'll talk about later. But The other one was my grandfather who had passed away five or six years prior to my brain cancer diagnosis is almost like he came back into my life and he was there with me because he also had three daughters. He had three different types of cancer. He had gone through all these things in life. The one thing I tried to really pull from him when he kind of entered my hospital room, if you will, was how positive he was throughout all of his hardships. I mean, he was shot in the war and he had diabetes and all these other things too, but he always had this unbelievable attitude like, hey, you know what? I'm still here. I'm still kicking. I'm going to make an impact for others while I'm here. And I think that was something that I always took from Gramps. And, you know, when I was laying there in the hospital, I, I was having a bad day. I would think about like, what would Gramps do? And he was always the one, you know, at the checkout line at the grocery store trying to make a joke to the cashier and make their day better. He was incredibly impactful in my life, even though he wasn't alive anymore. Just shows you how his spirit was still there with me. And then my dad and and his wife, they were doing all kinds of research for me, trying to figure out different places that could help me during the journey, getting me rides to treatment, you know, getting some financial assistance on some bills. We had the chemo medicine that I had to pay for every month for my brain was thousands of dollars. It wasn't covered by my insurance. And I worked for a great medical company before I got sick. So I had extremely good benefits, unlike a lot of people out there, unfortunately, but I didn't have a lot there. And then, yeah, just family and friends, people that loved on me a lot when I was sick. I didn't have a lot of people coming around when I was really sick because I I didn't want visitors. Mm -hmm. But when I was feeling up for it, man, they would show up in droves. And that meant a lot to me. And you really learn so much about the people around you. You know, I think they learn about you when you're going through your hardship. 
but I think you learn more about them when it, you're on the other side of it. And that's something that I've talked to a lot of people about is that caretakers or people that are around for their loved ones who are sick don't understand what that sick person is going through, but the sick person doesn't understand what it does to their loved ones who are mm -hmm. guilt stricken or wanting to do more and they can't and wanting to take away the pain, but there's no way to do that. So it was a unique experience, of course. And yeah, I had so much support from my family and friends and I'll always be grateful to them. You spoke there for a minute about feeling like you wanted to have like a second chapter in your life to do something different than you've been doing before to help others. And I know that that struggle you mentioned, the financial aspect of it, was one that you especially took to heart from this, how a cancer diagnosis and treatment that can last for years has a huge financial impact on somebody and their family. Can you expand on your experiences there and why this is an important aspect of cancer treatment? Absolutely. Yeah, I think this is the one thing, Colby, that gets forgotten about. I've done a lot of presentations over the years and ever since I started the nonprofit. And one of the things that I always tell everybody, it's not scripted, it's just kind of ingrained in my brain because it's real. And there's four aspects of cancer. There's the physical, emotional, and the mental strain that it puts on you. And so many people can see that, they can feel it. You know, I drive with a special device. So obviously in my truck, you can see this left foot accelerator. So it's, you can see with your own eyes, the physical ailments that I have because of cancer. You can feel it when I talk about it. And I've had a lot of people talk about how, gosh, Tony, you're so passionate. You care so much about all these other cancer fighters that you deal with. You know, the reality is that fourth aspect, the financial piece is so, I don't know if it's taboo or if it's shame or embarrassment, mm. but nobody talks about it. And you think like, oh, you know, so-and-so's got cancer and, you know, let's help them and bring them meals and all this other stuff. But how are they paying their bills? How are they getting by? I remember thinking about how we were going to make it, you know, how I was going to make it through, you know, I managed all of our finances. And when I got that call from HR that said, hey, now that you're out on leave, here's what you're going to get from us. I mean, the first thing I did in my head was trying to figure out like, okay, what are the things that we're going to be able to live without? Immediately, it changed our life financially. That's what I took from my cancer experience more than anything was how do the people that are my age or similar age range, you know, the people in their 20s, 30s, even 40s and early 50s, they haven't had the chance to save up money for as long as other folks. You know, what are they supposed to do when they get that cancer diagnosis? Where are they supposed to turn? Is there some group out there that just has unlimited funds that can help you get by until you're able to get back on your feet again? Well, not really. That group mm -hmm. is social security. And there's a lot of hurdles that we could yeah. talk about to make that happen. And so and a lot of people just get de denied over and over and over and they feel helpless. So I had a calling when I was at MD Anderson that I'd do something special. And after a lot of research and a lot of signs along the way and some great friends that I consulted with, they kept asking me, what is the worst part of the journey, Tony. And I'm like, man, there's all kinds of stuff that are horrible about the cancer journey. But getting by financially and having to worry about your mortgage and your utilities and your kids' extracurriculars and all these things, that shouldn't be a problem mm -hmm. just because you got cancer. One of the corporate partners that we work with, Colby, said, nobody should ever lose their home just because they got cancer. That line always, that was five years ago. That's always stood out for me. 
that was a good buddy of mine, Scott Kennedy. And he talked about that. And it's like, you know, how can that happen? And so, yeah, financially it was brutal. I had a great career, never worried about money. It definitely changed my life in that respect. And also taught me a lot about how you look at money and how we look at our finances and what we take for granted. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the one thing maybe that changed my life more than anything. What cancer did for me in a positive way to change my life is like, hey, you know what? I had a great career. I made a lot of money. Now I have cancer and I've taken a massive sacrifice financially. But guess what? That's okay. Because there's a lot of people out there that are in a lot worse shape. I always think about how it's changed my perspective and how I want to help more and more people because of what I've gone through. And if you don't have that experience, it's probably difficult for the people listening to me out there to say, I can't really relate to this guy. Some people can, some people can't. But hopefully the people that can't relate to what I'm saying can maybe understand or they know a friend or a coworker or somebody else that's gone through something similar and gone, well, maybe that person is dealing with some of the same strain, some of the same stress factors that Tony dealt with. And that's ultimately all I try to do these days with my foundation and everything that I've started is to try to make an impact on people, not just the cancer fighters, but how about all the other people that I bring along with me that can make an impact on the cancer fighters alongside me? Because mm-hmm. it's something we have to do together. Nobody can fight. Nobody should fight the cancer journey alone. Yeah. So let's talk about that. That financial piece was the driving factor behind your idea to start a foundation, Tony Foundation, that assists cancer patients with monetary assistance at this very crucial moment in their life and in their health. Can you tell us about the history of the foundation, the thought behind it, and some of the ways in which it's helping to support cancer patients? Yeah, absolutely. We got incorporated in January of 2018. Prior to that, I stopped my treatments in March of 17. So for about nine months and a little bit more, because I started researching it prior to getting off of chemo, for nine, 10, 11 months, all I did was sit at Starbucks drink lattes and try to figure out, you know, what we were going to do to help other cancer fighters. What could I do? What was our mission going to be? What was our program going to look like? And eventually my buddy, Scott Patterson, who's on my board of directors, who helped me kind of start the foundation. He had some nonprofit experience with a different nonprofit years ago. And he asked me, what was the absolute, if you had to pinpoint the absolute worst point, the worst that you go through during this journey, what would it be? Could we do something with that to help the other cancer fighters in our communities? And I told him, I said, I think it would have to be the financial piece because even though we had a lot of help, you know, I was in a sales career, you know, Colby, I'm I'm an extrovert. I have a a network. I'm social. A lot of people are not like that. And so a lot of the people that I run into nowadays are people that didn't have a big network or don't have a huge family that can come around and help them. I did have a lot of that. And so I realized in that moment that this is what we need to do for people. But my research told me everything. My research said nobody does financial assistance grants like this. And anybody that I did find that did something similar, it was usually much smaller amounts of money And it usually required a lot of legwork from the cancer fighter. And so the one thing I didn't want to do for cancer fighters 
which they get from their doctors, nurses, family members is telling them what to do with the money. So we came up with grants where they don't have to send us a utility bill. They don't have to send us things that we would reimburse them for. We actually give them the freedom to use our financial grants for whatever they see fit, which could be catching up on medical bills. It could be the utility bills or their mortgage payments. Or what if it's maybe a nice night out occasionally because they're stuck on treatment in a dark place for a long time? Or what about a nice vacation if they don't have a very good prognosis? Colby, I get asked all the time, what happens if you know, the families that are going through something, the cancer fighter doesn't have maybe a long time to live? And I say, it doesn't make any difference to me. If they don't have a great prognosis, I still want to help them. Because what's to keep us from allowing them to make special memories with their kids, to go on a special trip where they can take pictures and have those memories forever? Nobody should have to struggle through that without having a little bit of joy in their life, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important thing that I've, I feel very strongly about, obviously. So if we determined we wanted to do financial assistance, we came up with these large grants that we write, $5,000 for every family that we help. And we feel like it does a lot of things. A lot of people have called us gap funding because oftentimes the treatment may only be a few months. 18 months is kind of a long time. That's how much I had to do. But for a lot of patients, they just need supplemental income for a few months before they end up going back to work. But in the meantime, maybe they didn't, you know, they weren't able to tap into their savings and, you know, they can't access their 401ks or their IRAs, you know, so every situation is different, but we know what we're doing is helping people. But in some cases, you know, it's saving lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In our discussion before the show, you also told me that one of the goals of the Tony Foundation is to help connect cancer fighters with each other. This idea that strangers connected by a diagnosis that they share can turn into a support network, which you already mentioned, so important when someone is, is getting treatment for this. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I think it's crucial. You know, I never did any support groups when I was going through, you know, the heart of my treatment. Too hard for me to get out. And then, of course, it's difficult if you're not feeling well to get out and, and meet other people. But virtually or through social media, mostly, a lot of our families that we help, a lot of the cancer fighters that I meet connect through social media and through our platform. And at Tony Foundation, we've tried to use the uh, hashtag and we tell almost every family we help that they're part of our Tony Foundation family. Once we meet them, we exchange stories. You know, they always want to hear about my diagnosis and how I'm doing. A lot of them will text me and say, hey, Tony, how are your scans going? It's a back and forth. It becomes like a brother and sister type relationship or we're all kind of brothers and sisters in the cancer fight because I can't tell you how many times I come across another cancer fighter and we share stories and they tell me, hey, you know what? I, I wasn't able to talk to my wife or my husband about this, but it was nice because you know what I'm going through and I can talk to you about it. And Colby, it's just as nice for me because I think sometimes, you know, it's great for me to be able to get that perspective and also say, hey, you know what? This person has a great outlook and a great attitude and maybe I'm not having the greatest day. And it reminds me of, why I need to continue to focus on being positive and, and living life to the fullest because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. My whole outlook has always been, 
I think I was on another podcast one time. I talked about we have a choice. We all have a choice in life, how we look at things, how we look at adversity, whether it's cancer or a death in the family or some other kind of horrific event. You know, we can take it as something that's going to lead us down this horrible path or something that we can use as fuel or motivation or inspiration. And I've never thought about going that way. I've always gone this way. And I think, you know, I've always made that conscious choice to try to uplift. And uh, I have met a lot of cancer fighters that one of them in particular that you know, I met at a Starbucks one time and a friend of mine asked me if I would meet with them and they didn't know what they were going to do. They had just been freshly diagnosed. They were in a dark place. I mean, I could tell from the moment I met with them and my whole goal and mission during that two hours we spent together was to take them from that dark place and bring them out of it. And I felt like when we hugged it out at the end of that two hours, when he was saying, hey, you know, I, I really feel like I can do this now. There was more satisfaction in that, Colby, than any paycheck or commission check or anything I'd ever received in my life before. Because I didn't know where this guy would have gone had he and I not been connected. Right. Like I, I felt like I felt like that was a big, big deal for him. And that's something that I didn't have to do. I wasn't getting paid to go meet with him. I did it. It was on a human level. And I think a lot of times what cancer teaches us is we're all humans. We're fragile. When I say about anything could happen tomorrow, that's why I don't worry about my own cancer future, because I don't know if I'm going to get something happen to me tomorrow or the next day, or maybe I get to live until I'm 80 years old, right? We just don't know. And that's out of our hands. And so all we can do is try to be the best version of ourselves and how about we help more around us? I think that's kind of what I've always tried to impress upon the people that I work with. So then the Tony Foundation, it sounds like it's kind of this combination of assisting people with this crucial financial assistance, but also connecting them. Then let's say somebody needs your assistance. You know, they reach out, they want to see about the ways that the Tony Foundation can help them. What sort of support can they expect? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll always try to connect people, whether they are a fit for the Tony Foundation financial assistance or not. We always have a plethora of resources that we're able to give to people. The last thing I ever want to do is say, no, we can't help you. See you later. If a cancer fighter comes up to me or if they call me, email me, go through our website, social media, you can imagine my door gets knocked on quite a bit and it's tough. I really don't like to turn anybody away. Unfortunately, that's why we fundraise so hard because we need a lot of funds in order to help a lot of people. But if we can't help them financially, there's a lot of great resources out there that don't do financial grants, but can help cancer fighters through other types of therapy, other kinds of things that they can get help for. Certainly, it's geographical, too. I mean, there's a lot of nonprofits in my area that I know their executive directors, and and we've become friends. And then there's a lot of, I get, you know, you can imagine I get solicitations sometimes from all over the country. You know, it's tough to kind of weed through everything, but at the end of the day, we have a lot of resources and we have a lot of corporate partners that become resources for our cancer fighters as well. We have a financial planner that helps them, you know, navigate the journey. I talked to you earlier about how the first thing I thought of when the HR person from New York called me and said, hey, you're going to be making X amount, which was drastically different mm -hmm. from what I had made before. The first thing I thought is, how am I going to manage our finances? And a lot of people don't know how to do that on their own, nor should they, right? That's not 
necessarily their focus. We also have, so we have one resource on our website for that. We have another one for long-term care, absent services. I talked about how difficult it is to get on disability. This is a company that it's a legal firm that helps them navigate that disability journey, trying to get on SSDI, which is a big deal because if you're out of work and you're sick, you should be able to get some kind of government assistance. But a lot of people don't know about that. So we bring them in and they've helped a lot of our recipients, actually. We also have some health and wellness resources to a good friend, Mandy, who, you know, if people choose to seek out her help, she's phenomenal about how to deal with the aftermath of physical trauma. And so there's a lot of neat resources out there. People have to be willing, of course, to take part, but I try to do my best to explain to them why it's so important to utilize some of those resources, especially when they're free. Sounds like a lot of great support at a, at a time when people need it the most. Let's talk about some of the ways in which your organization fundraises to help get cancer patients the support they need. In the fall, you had two events in particular, a casino night fundraiser and also a night with Chef Gabe Arellis. That's the winner of the Portland season of Top Chef on Bravo. Can you tell us about those experiences and give us a little preview of what you'll be doing in 2024? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, casino night was awesome. That was my 40th birthday. So had one of my board members and my fiance organizing this incredible event. It was so much fun. I got up there to speak at the end of it. Everybody was dressed to the nines. We had it as a black tie affair. It was a lot of fun. We had so many people that don't typically come to our golf tournaments or some of our other events that attended this one. And so it was special, not just because it was kind of that landmark birthday, which in itself was kind of special knowing that, you know, you get cancer at a young age and here I am now I'm 40. So, and I'm going to keep living. Right. And the next event we had right after that was the top chef experience. Both of these two events were my favorite events we've ever had. Top chef was fun because I have a really awesome friendship with a celebrity chef and Gabe is the most humble down to earth guy you'll ever meet, but he's amazing at what he does, his craft. And obviously he got a lot of notoriety for what he did on Bravo's top chef reality show. So he and I talked a lot about doing an event, same kind of thing. It was a dress up, not necessarily a black tie, but everybody was dressed to the nines at this event. We had, you know, I think 65 people, a lot of them bought tables. Gabe got up there and spoke and I spoke and we raised a lot of money. I think we raised 35,000 bucks at the Top Chef event. Casino night, I think did 10 or $15,000. Great events, but really more than the money, it was great exposure. You know, we had some press clippings because of probably Gabe's notoriety. He had a brand new restaurant in downtown Austin. So that was a lot of fun. And then just having a lot of the camaraderie, the people that came to the events. I think there was a fun factor there that I've heard a lot of feedback from. We're going to be trying to do both of those events again. We're definitely doing the Top Chef event again this fall, 2024. So that'll be terrific. We're talking about doing the casino night again. And then we have a few different golf tournaments. We do golf tournaments in Dallas, Austin, Houston, and San Antonio, actually, on an annual basis. So Houston is actually, this is the first year we're doing Houston, but I think they felt left out. We had all the big cities in Texas, and now we we loop them in as well, So, which is great because that's where I was born. So a lot of fun events coming up in 2024. I hope to do a lot of good fundraising we ask people if they want to do recurring monthly donations. Recurring donors are, are big to our cause because it creates more sustainability. 
And then we have a lot of people that like to sponsor families. So for any anybody out there that wants to help a cancer fighter on their journey, you know, $5,000 allows us to basically have a personal gift from whether it's a company or an individual that says, hey, I'd like to, you know, it's random. You don't know who you're supporting. We don't know who we're supporting until we get the cancer fighters from our oncology network, which I think, Colby, is a great thing because it takes out all potential bias, keeps us from ever, ever having any fraudulent applicants, which unfortunately is a part of the nonprofit world. And so they're our safeguard to make sure that the money goes to people that are really deserving and that really need that financial assistance. So we're hoping to do a lot more of that this year. So if you want to sponsor a cancer fighter, that's a big, big deal for those people. Well, if someone in our audience is facing a new cancer diagnosis today, maybe they're unsure about their path through treatment or they're wondering what kind of financial impact this is going to have on their family. What advice do you have for them? Yeah, it's so tough, right? You know, the early stages of the diagnosis are so tough because you just don't really know how to navigate it, especially if you've never done it before. You know, even for me on the second diagnosis, I still had no idea because it was so completely different from my first one. So my best advice for anybody that gets that call from their doctor that says, hey, you know, you have a mass or you have a tumor, we need to get you in here immediately, is to kind of take it one step at a time, one foot in front of the other, one day at a time, I think it can get overwhelming very fast. And if you allow it to get overwhelming very fast, it will create a lot of stress, can ruin relationships. It can really just do damage to your body, right? I'm a big believer in, you know, that mental stress. When I talk about those four aspects of cancer, Colby, I talk to a lot of these people that are freshly diagnosed And I talk about how the mental part can really affect you physically if you allow it to. So I just believe in the power of positivity. I believe in prayer. I believe in leaning on the ones that you can lean on. A lot of people have a difficult time asking for help. I've talked to so many people that are like, I've never had to ask for help. I don't ever want to ask for help. And I'm like, well, you better get ready to, because you can't do this cancer journey without getting a little bit of help, without needing some help. I would say, you know, the financial impact is going to be one that, like we've discussed already, is a big part of the equation. Nobody ever has a just in case I get cancer fund sitting Mm -hmm. there. So you, you do have to start making sacrifices pretty quickly. Fortunately, we did have areas that we could sacrifice and and we did, and it was tough cutting back on cable and some of these other things are not fun things to do. Not being able to go out for meals is not, you know, it's nice to be able to get out and not have to cook all the time, especially when you're not feeling well or you have young kids and there's all kinds of other activities going on. So, you know, my best advice for them is to stay positive and realize that it's not a death sentence. I think a lot of people, when they hear the word cancer, they hear that C word, they're thinking, am I going to die? And advances in in treatment and therapy have come so far, of course, We're not there yet, and we may not be alive when we're there yet, right? This process takes a long time, but my whole thing was always being very confident in my doctors, really leaning on my nurses and paying attention and listening. Occasionally, I would record the conversations because my brain was so jacked up. I couldn't remember. I'd walk out of the doctor's office, and I'd forget everything that they told me to do. So eventually, I got some good advice, and I started you know, recording on my phone. We all have those things these days that 
can have an audio recording. So facing each challenge as it comes, because if you make cancer this massive thing, it becomes too much. And okay, right now we're going to focus on this MRI. Next thing, we're going to focus on getting to the right doctors. And then after when we're on our treatment, after surgery, if you have to have it, well, let's focus on today and just seeing if we can eat something. Let's see if we can drink a lot of water. I mean, that's literally how I kind of mapped out some of my days. It sounds kind of crazy, but when you're in the moment, and look, you said, Colby, 18 months of treatment. It was really a few years of just insanity. And so if you take those three years of my life, yeah, I, I forgot a lot about those three years. And during this call, I'm remembering little bits and pieces, right? But ultimately, it was an experience that I had. It's a chapter in my book, which I will write one day. It's an experience. And everybody has these experiences in life. And you have to kind of slow it down and realize that everything you do, you know, every little step you take along that along the way is going to have a an effect or a consequence of some kind. And, you know, by being positive and looking at what I can get from this, look at what I did, right? The adversity that I went through and I took it and I spun it into a positive for other cancer fighters. So what's to stop other people that have similar experiences, you know, from doing something special themselves? Nothing. It all just takes effort and a lot of people around you to help. Hmm. Well, that's great advice. If one of our listeners today would like to get involved, whether they need help or they would like to help provide for people who need the Tony Foundation's assistance, what are some of the ways in which they can do that? Yeah, if people want to get involved with Tony Foundation, I would just urge them to go to TonyFoundation.org, subscribe to our newsletter. You'll get a little box that pops up on your screen no matter what when you go to the site anyways. And we'd love for people to subscribe to our emails. They only come once a month. We don't bombard people. It's great because you can find out about all the events and fundraisers we have. You can also see the resources we have on our website. You can see a collage of all the families we've helped on the website. You can see so many things that we put out there, our blogs. I think it's educational. I also think, you know, people can find resources that they need. That people can also, you know, make an impact. And I think at the end of the day, what we do requires a lot of people making an impact and donations, contributions. We accept all kinds, whether it's in-kind, people donating gifts or goods or services, whether that's things that they donate that can make money in an auction or services that can do well in a raffle, or they just want to help and their family likes to support unique causes. Usually it takes a cancer connection. The people that connect with us have been affected, have been impacted by cancer, whether it's them or people around them. And so we definitely can use more and more donations, corporate partnerships, just to inquire about that. Info at TonyFoundation.org is our email box. And we would love to answer questions. What we do, we feel is very special and we feel it's a community. We want more people to be involved so that we can help more cancer fighters that really need it. Well, Tony, I'd like to thank you so much for taking the time to appear on our show today. And also thank you so much for all the great work you're doing over at the Tony Foundation to help support cancer patients. Uh, Thank you for having me, Colby. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate you putting the word out about this. Of course. And keep us up to date about your book. We'll have to have you on again to talk about it. (laughs) Sounds great.
All right. Well, if you'd like to learn more about the Tony Foundation, as Tony said, and how you can help support it, you can check out their website at TonyFoundation.org. And we'll also leave a link in the show notes for this episode for easy access to that and their fundraising pages. And remember, you can always keep up with the latest in rare disease news by visiting our website at PatientWorthy.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for PatientWorthy on those platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Subscribing ensures you'll automatically receive our new monthly episodes as soon as they come out and review or rating really does go a long way toward helping us out. Finally, if you have any questions about the podcast or perhaps an idea for a future episode, you can get in touch with me by sending an email to colby at patientworthy.com. That does it for today's episode. Thank you once again to Tony Laudadio for joining me on the show today. And as always, thank you for listening.